Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I follow quarantine procedures. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and when I am in charge, all commercial freighters will have chief social science officers. Thank you very much. And you are listening to Space the Nation, a podcast about political science, international relations, and spaceships. Uh, this week is a little different. We're doing Alien, which is science fiction, but also horror, a very important horror film. We're going kind mm-hmm. of straight back into, well, somewhat traditional science fiction. We're going to be discussing Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, also very influential. After mm-hmm. that, Galaxy Quest, which mm. one hopes will be a fun episode. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, coming up after that is the three-body problem, the movie Arrival, and also another entry in our Cannon Fodder series, in which we will be looking at the H.P. Lovecraft Irv. Ooh. <laughs> And we have more exciting stuff to come, ranging from the really, really good to, I would add, the really, really schlocky in terms of of things coming on. But I would also say that uh, further on down the horizon, we are going to be listening to our listeners on this. So uh, if you want us to talk about something, for the love of God, let us know, or even better yet, join us as a patron. Uh, You go to patreon.com slash space the nation. We obviously accept money, but we also accept attention, and we will respond to... uh, (laughs) Criticism, however you want to lodge it. Uh, Isn't that right, Anna? Yes, that is true. And another reason you should actually become a patron is that we almost have 100 of them. And we have set a goal that when we have 100 Mm -hmm. patrons, we're going to do a special patrons-only show. And that's for all patrons um, from the $3 a month to the $35 a month. I can't believe there are people paying us $35 a month, Dan. That is... I can. We're friggin' awesome, Anna. (laughs) Okay, but I'm uh, in all seriousness very grateful for those people who are paying that. I am very grateful as well. I also just want to put out there, yes, we know about Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Yes, we know about Babylon 5. Those are two shows that people have been kind of banging on the windows about. And um, we're trying to figure out a way to do series in a format that will not require us to watch five years worth of shows. So yes, yes. <laughs> Once yes. we crack, and that also nut. <laughs> we're, when, when we get to Battlestar Galactica, we're going to do it in the proper sequence. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, Dan has a plan. But let's get to Alien. We were both so excited about this. Uh, Dan, yes. it was your idea that we do Alien. Yes. So tell me what the thinking was. So I, I guess I had two forms of thought on this. The first is is that. We know from the co-creators of The Expanse, particularly Ty Frank, has been very upfront in saying that one of the inspirations for uh, The Expanse was Alien. And indeed, multiple cast members, uh, particularly Thomas Jane and and Wes Chatham, have talked about the influence uh, that Alien has had in terms of their love of sci-fi, their love of genre, and so forth. And so it seemed like a natural segue to go from talking about The Expanse to talking about the wider sci-fi universe. The simpler and shorter answer I would give is, Jesus fucking Christ, why not talk about this movie? This movie is goddamn perfection. It is. It truly is. And I remember being a little surprised when you suggested it because I was like, where's the IR? But then as I sat down to rewatch it, I was blown over yet again by, oh, my God, this is a perfect movie. This is, there is nothing about this movie that doesn't work. And we will talk about <laughs> all of it, all of those working yes. things. I have like literally we- one thing that I might have changed had I been in charge. But I shouldn't have been in charge because it's a great movie. <laughs> Um. Uh, yes, and there is, there is. we will get to the IR component. There's a very small bit of IR. But also, like, you know, we can talk about things that are just really good sci-fi. I mean, this, you know, that's part of the purpose it of the It is podcast. true. We get to fan person about it. Exactly. 
So Dan, you and I both kind of have a little bit of context to share about mm-hmm. Alien. Uh, you watched the director's cut, for instance. Yes. Well, I've watched. I, we're going to talk primarily about the theatrical cut, but I did watch the director's cut. Now, it should be noted that. You know, when you talk about Ridley Scott films, you know, for example, if you talk about Blade Runner, I believe there are eight different versions (laughs) of Blade Runner, several of which are director cuts. There is a director's cut version of Alien that was released in 2003 when they released the sort of grand DVD tetralogy of the four Alien movies at that point. The thing I want to say about the director's cut is that uh, it is not necessarily as long as, in fact, the actual theatrical cut. Ridley Scott decided to insert some scenes, but he cut a fair some other scenes that have sort of long tracking shots. But he has also made it very clear uh, in multiple interviews that his director's cut is not, in his opinion, a better version uh, than the theatrical cut. And indeed, having watched both of them, I would argue the theatrical cut is better except for one scene that is in the director's cut that we can talk about now if you want. But like, I, I really like the fact that that I wish that scene had been in the theatrical cut, which is essentially how the the crew reacts when um, when Ripley initially doesn't want to bring Dallas Lambert and, and Kane back in because of quarantine procedures. And what happens when they confront Ripley for the first time about that? I thought that was absolutely a great scene and should have been in the, the theatrical film. So I'd like to learn more about that Ripley and Lambert scene because she is the wink link in in my opinion. But Lambert, I not offer... Ripley. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but I want to talk about the context that I can bring here, which has to do with the mm-hmm. movie that's made about the making of Alien called Memory. It's a little mm-hmm. bit of a strange documentary. It has a framing device having to do with the ancient Greek furies that doesn't really work. But mm-hmm. it has lots and lots of history. Um, interviews with Dan O'Bannon's um, widow, Cool details like Dan O'Bannon suffered from Crohn's disease, which oh. can Dan O'Bannon, you... bang the, by the way, the screenwriter for Alien. Yes, so. sorry, which can make you feel like you're being eaten from the inside out. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, and it, it really is sort of a Dan O'Bannon um, love letter in a way. Uh, he does seem to have been a very interesting guy. Um, <laughs> Kind of an autodidact. He grew up in rural um, South uh, without a television, um, <laughs> and his mom got him lots of library books. And he just had an amazing imagination. He was also an artist. He was a little twisted, I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he had an imagination. I mean, he came up with some of the most important things about this movie, the chestbuster yes. scene being mm-hmm. the big one. And it's it's... We'll talk about this more later, perhaps, but I think it's difficult to overstate the importance of that scene, both in the movie and kind of in science fiction. I mean, it seems right. so normal to us today. It's a, it's like a cliche, but one of the things that they, they talk about in the documentary is Ridley Scott reading the script and at that point in his career, not being very into sci-fi mm-hmm. and getting to that point in the script and saying, oh, fuck, like, you know. <laughs> It was like a truly, I think he actually said, fuck me. Um, (laughs) It's a truly surprising thing. And again, today it seems like, well, of course, like that, you know, whatever. But it it made it possible for that film to get made. And it made Mm -hmm. it possible for Ridley Scott to make that film. And and I think it is a testament to collaboration, but also Ridley Scott, I I just, it's possible it could have been a good movie without um, Ridley Scott, but it may not have been the perfect 
perfect movie that it is. Right. So so I I'll talk about this in a little bit, but I I, I am perfectly willing to concede that Ridley Scott is primus inter alis, you know, first among equals <laughs> in terms of of the role that you know that, that and yes, this this would have been a different movie without him. That is entirely fair. And I'll just say a couple of things about about what he actually brought to it. Um, he shot mm-hmm. almost the whole thing himself, like literally held the camera, did the cinematography himself, oh, okay. and it's all you know closely shot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's claustrophobic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you don't really realize like how naturalistic it is, I think, until you think about other science fiction movies. It feels like an Altman film, although Altman <laughs> was like not yet actually in his prime. Like This is Alt- way too small of a cast for an Altman film, I would point out. Well, but yes, except that there point. are scenes that have the entire cast in one frame. That's fair. And, yes, and that yes, they're yes. all talking naturally. They're all talking mm-hmm. in normal t- tone of voice. Right. There's all these different conversations happening. You can sort of follow it, but it's the pastiche of those conversations that's really important. Yeah. And it's really Scott that also uh, argued for H.R. Geiger, which obviously could not have been like this movie would not be what it is without him. Right. Although my understanding was that O'Bannon also was. Oh, the he person. brought him in, but the studio was, was like, the one who brought was like in. no yeah, fuck, yeah, okay. no way. Like this guy is, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, pornography. Okay. <laughs> like, right. <yep. laughs> Which we will also get to in a little bit. Yes. Right. I mean, O'Bannon <laughs> discovered Geiger. It is right. true, and he actually paid him out of his own pocket for some original sketches of, of oh, the wow. monster. But there was no way the studio was going to use Geiger unless Scott got on board with it. And it was Scott that sort of realized that this is what it needed to be. And also Scott that I think brought the griminess and the working class sort of feel to it, which again, today I feel like we look at this and it's, it's one of the tropes in science fiction that you have a grimy kind of feel to a movie. But when this movie came out, Mm -hmm. like it was just completely different than any other science fiction like True, film that had been popular in that time. I do want to say, so this is, you know, again, one of the advantages of, of doing this from the expanse is having, um, my understanding is that it was more, it was also Walter Hill, oh. who was one of the producers of the movie and a, a great director in his own right, that he was the one in some ways who added a lot of the grit. Um, that I don't, I mean, I don't doubt Ridley Scott embraced it and and clearly, you know, again, but that the story that was told at least on the tie and that guy version of this is that, is that Walter Hill had the same reactions that that Ridley Scott did to O'Bannon's original script, which was, oh, that chest busting, you know, bursting scene, holy shit. But basically thought that otherwise the problem with the script at that point was it was too, like the characterizations were paper thin and that there wasn't enough grit, Mm -hmm. um, that there needed to be that working class element. And so it it was Hill who was the first person to sort of suggest that. And perhaps I should say that the Ridley Scott is the master of having realized what that grit would look like. Yes, that's The fair. set design, he had an enormous control over the set design uh, yeah. and the sound okay. design. And I'll just, I'll, I'll put it in here because it's one of the, the things that blew my mind in, in watching the documentary. Like after I saw, I watched the documentary and then watched the movie again. There is a heartbeat breathing sound in the soundtrack mm-hmm. in the scenes on the ship. It's hmm. barely noticeable, right. but it's the sound of the ship. Yeah. Like, it is a sign that this is a creature, that it is alive. The ship, mm-hmm. I mean. like this, right. the sh- And the ship is an entity into itself. Although that's interestingly enough, it, this show doesn't, I mean, this movie, 
obviously, you know, in some ways when we talk about stuff like this, I mean, this is a movie that in, in many ways is the counterpoint of, let's say, a Star Trek film or the Star Trek series in that it's obviously not nearly as optimistic. But on the sound design, this might be one area where there's actually similarities because one of the things about the Star Trek universe is that they always have that ambient ship noise in the background. Mm-hmm. I think that the difference might be that this is a really organic ship. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. Um, that, you know, uh, things happen on this ship without any human agency. The ship does right. not need humans to to move through space. Really? That first yes. tracking shot where you oh, the, yeah. where you just get the scenery, you just get the feel of the ship. There's movement on the ship without humans. There's wind that blows for some reason. <laughs> you know? There's rain at one point. There's rain, which... Yeah. In the documentary, they say, well, we never really figured out how that would be. (laughs) Just just really, Scott wanted rain. (laughs) But to me, it's one of the ways that they make the ship its own living environment. That it, it, again, does not need humans to exist. So now that we have literally set the scene, although Mm -hmm. I could talk about, I could talk about the cinematography and the sound design in this movie for an hour in and of itself. Let us move on to the next Mm -hmm. section of the podcast. Dan, could you please recount the plot? I would be happy to do so. So uh, we will start with Act One, uh, the setup. So there is a seven-person crew of the commercial freighter Nostromo. Uh, It is heading back to Earth, and it is awakened early by Mother, the AI that is running the ship while they are all in hypersleep. They have picked up what might be an automated distress beacon and are apparently required to investigate. It would be safe to say that no one in the crew is terribly happy about this assignment, except Ash, the chief science officer. Anna, I feel like... Everyone who ever wants to be involved in filmmaking, by which I mean fledgling actors, screenwriters, directors, set designers, even composers, should be required to watch the first 15 minutes of this film before they make their own because it really is goddamn perfection. What say you on this? <laughs> you know how I feel, Dan. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I would expand it to they should watch the whole goddamn movie. Yes, um, fair enough. Yeah, but yeah, it is yeah. true that the first tw- you know, 15 or 20 minutes w- in which there's very little human action um mm-hmm. it's it's basically just scene setting is a masterpiece like again that tracking shot where you where you enter the ship mm-hmm. is so gorgeous and what i was thinking as i was watching the opening credits even was even the opening credit sequence that just the the way the 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 way it, the way the title comes on is the just the fucking font like yes it is <laughs> This movie is a master for a movie that is about capitalism. It is a masterpiece of economy. <laughs> like there is mm-hmm. nothing wasted in this film and there is no attention yes. given to something that's not going to be important later. This is like a right. Chekhov's movie. Like there's just like every single thing that happens in it is going to be important later. And that's just right. so unusual to find in a movie and maybe in one way that this isn't Altman-esque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, and, and then the other thing I want to say to the extent we do meet the cast is just what a fucking cast. Yes. I mean, Harry Dean Stanton, Yafet Koto, Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Ian Holm, John Hurt, and then the woman who plays Lambert. Veronica Cartwright. <laughs> I'm going to defend Lambert, by the way, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. But like, um, the Oscars and the Emmys that that group of people like yeah. have among them, and just the great roles that they've all played. And this is very right. early on in all of their careers, except, I guess, perhaps Ian Holm. But just, and Tom Skerritt, I think, yeah. Yeah, but just just perfection. Um, yes. And, and how the, much you get out of how little is given to you. you right. Know, the other thing, that's the thing that's, that's extraordinary to me and the reason why I talk about the first 15 minutes, because there, as you point out, there is not a ton of dialogue. 
in these first 15 minutes. There's really only two very quick scenes where you see the whole crew together. And yet, by the end of it, you feel like you know almost everyone on this ship. Indeed, weirdly enough, the character that you actually know the least about after that first 15 minutes is Ripley. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, one of the reasons why the movie works, particularly the first time you, you ever watch it. But, you know, like... The nature of, like, the internal fissures on that crew, the the way in which everyone gets along. You know, there are television shows that spend years with seven characters in which you don't see interactions or interactions that make no sense, as opposed to this, which is just, it's incredibly naturalistic. It's just, and again, this is in some ways the point I want to make about the sort of collaborative nature of the filmmaking. Ridley Scott is responsible for a lot of this, but that the cast mm. is fucking amazing. It um, is. And, you know, just like just like a 30-second interaction in that opening between Parker and Dallas in which they're talking about shares. I just, I loved all of it. It was just Which, really of course, good. also sets up the entire, like, class struggle um, yes, that's depicted yes. <laughs> in okay. the movie. And I want to point out, so when you say naturalistic, I'll just say again, and the ship is part of that naturalism in a really interesting right. way. Something I only noticed in this rewatch, and I can't even count the number of times I've seen this movie. I own it, um, although mm-hmm. only digitally, but it, it, yeah. I feel like it says something that these days when you choose to buy a digital copy of something. Mm-hmm. That's how important the movie is to me. Um, <laughs> the scene at the very beginning where they get the alert that they're going to have to change course, um, right. that it comes to the ship. Of course, yeah. importantly, it does not come to the crew. The crew's in hypersleep. Um, right. But you see the message unfold on a computer screen, and that message plays over the empty visor of an emergency helmet it's an incredibly eerie scene Mm -hmm. and it again is sort of it is sort of telegraphing that this is all happening with or without humans this is just going to unfold at whatever pace like this computer and this company have decided have decided that this is going to unfold and the humans are extraneous to this project Mm. even if you aren't thinking that that text playing out on the visor is just really eerie, even if you don't yeah. know why. The other thing I'd say about the griminess is, even though obviously, you know, there are QWERTY t- keyboards, which is one of the things that annoys me about. <laughs> I was going to ask you about this a little <laughs> about, bit later. Yes, about space technology in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, these are cathode ray, like, you right. know, screens and stuff, but it doesn't feel outdated for no, some so reason. Way- yeah, the way I would put it, I was the particularly the mother set is the one that I like even to this day watch and think, yeah, okay, could totally see that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes sense. Um, I mean, as you point out, there are other there are aspects of it where it is also a movie of its time, obviously, and right. as, you know, as you say, like you know, you see these huge cards, and that's obviously not necessarily how it would go, but nonetheless, it still feels true in a way that not a lot of science fiction that is you know. 40 years old. It also feels, feel. we, since we haven't said already, very belter. Yes. I mean, and they right. also are, yeah. a, a, I believe they're carrying ore, right? So yes, they are. It's yeah. a mining operation. So it very, yes. and very, you can, very belter. No, and also I would say the first 15 minutes also makes clear what the genealogy is of the expanse. Um, mm-hmm. In that it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's a commercial freighter, much like the Canterbury that starts off with the expanse. And again, both plots kick off with a distress signal involving mm-hmm. eventually what we discover is a xenomorph. So, yeah, the skeletal structures are kind of similar there. Okay. 
again, I could go on about even just that first 20 minutes, but we probably should move forward. Okay, so they land, uh, according to instructions from Mother, on a very inhospitable planet. It's a rough landing. Captain Dallas, First Officer Kane, and Pilot Lambert find a derelict spacecraft of alien design with what looks like the remains of a pilot. Just as Warrant Officer Ripley, back on the Nostromo, is learning that the beacon that was sent is not actually an SOS, but is apparently a warning of some kind, Kane finds an entire floor of what look like eggs. As he's investigating, one of the eggs opens up and an alien attaches itself to Kane's face through uh, the space mask. Dallas and Lambert return to the ship with Kane and want to bring him in to get him to the med bay. Ripley wants to adhere to quarantine protocols. There is a small argument, at which point Ash, who is at the interlock chamber, decides to let them in anyway. As Ash and Dallas try to remove the face hugger from Kane's face, they learn that the alien has acid for blood and it nearly rips through the entire ship. Anna, is it me or is everyone except Ripley way too fucking casual about the concept of quarantine? <laughs> Living in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest this is probably just a little bit of human nature um, mm-hmm. to be casual about threats that might put profit at risk. This whole movie is about the logic of capitalism to me, uh, and uh-huh. that is what plays out in this scene. I will also say on the human nature point, I think it, it isn't said outright in the movie, but from sort of you know my personal sort of backstory, alien life forms are, have not been encountered very much in this universe. Right. No, I think that, I think that is like in, I, the, the inference is, is that alien life does exist, but it's exceptionally rare. Right. And that was the, that was the impression you get from the first part of this film. And it is hard for humans. Um, maybe there's some ire here. I think it's humans. I think tend to greatly overestimate or underestimate threats, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. especially um, a threat that at the end of the moment there seems to be a greater need. Right. Right now, like the, the I okay, I personally would probably be like that thing on his face is fucking terrifying and I yeah. don't want to put it anywhere near other people and I, right. I want to come in. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, let's leave him out there. Right. <laughs> so this by the way, actually so this is where I would push back. I know you think this movie is entirely about capitalism and we're gonna have that debate because I'm not entirely disagree with you. But this scene I don't think is actually about capitalism. The reason Ash lets them in obviously is related to that. But I'm assuming that the reason Lambert and Dallas want to get, first of all, they want to get into the ship. And second, they care about Kane. So this is oh, not yeah, yeah, just yeah, about yeah, capitalism. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, okay. of course, like there's this yeah. captain and they're doing, they're trying to do right. the right thing by their colleague. Although again, yeah. maybe I'm a bad person, but. <laughs> no, I, this is actually, I mean, in some ways, this is the first moment in which I, you really start paying attention to Sigourney Weaver yeah. at, as Ripley. And I actually, one of the things I really admire in terms of this performance is that, again, it's a very sort of modulated, dispassionate look in which she understands why they want to come in, but she also understands this is really not the right thing to do right now. And then, of course, she gets overridden. And again, I would point out that if everyone had just listened to Ripley, there would be no four movies. <laughs> no, there, there, there would not. And Sigourney Weaver would, would have a different career, most likely. So the other things I want to say about this section of the movie include the spaceship, the, the scene, the the actual like setting uh, of the mm-hmm. spaceship is incredible. It's the first place you see H.R. Geiger's work really yeah. kind of coming to the forefront. You um, mean the alien ship, by the way? The alien ship, yes. When, yes, they, okay, when they get to the alien ship. And interesting things for the documentary, it's quasi-Egyptian, which again, if you kind of look at it, you're like, oh yeah, you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> the ship itself doesn't seem very sexual, but... 
once again, you kind of look at it. H.R. <laughs> Geiger's work always has this sexuality to it and this you know, pulsing, organic feel to it, even if it's not actually in action. The lighting of that, the whole thing, I mean, it's just incredible. And the other thing you learn in the documentary is that it's all built to scale. They, they built that thing. Not wow. the whole, whole thing, but the scenes where the actors are in the ship. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The space jockey, as it's now come to be known, the, the right. pilot of the ship, that is, they, they were look, they're in front of a thing that that's big. They're looking at a thing that that's big. They're in a space that that's big. And, and I think that that helps make the movie great, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like when you put yeah. actors in the space they're supposed to be in, for one thing, you get away from one of the problems that I think a lot of actors have in sci-fi movies, which is like the punching of buttons that don't really exist, you know, the <laughs> the green screen and whatnot. So it, it, it just, and again, it, it sort of makes everything a little more naturalistic. And plot-wise, it is unfortunate they don't notice that the space jockey's chest has been blown out. Well, they notice. Well, they notice. They just don't. They don't draw any conclusions from it necessarily. Yes. Yes. Um, but I, and I would also and add, that it has a, that it has a thing attached to it too. Like yes. it looks yeah. like it's a it's a face mask, but then when the camera sort of lovingly mm-hmm. like pans over it, it looks like he has a, a chest a face hugger. Yeah, Could face be. hugger, chest buster. Face Although, see, the, so chest buster. the one thing I will say is that uh, let me put it this way. The, whatever your feelings about Prometheus, which is the the sort of prequel that Ridley Scott made. There is a way in which you understand why a a good prequel could have been made because up until this moment, up until the face hugging, you know, Kang gets attacked, you don't know which way this direction this movie is going to go, and it really the the you know you see the the alien ship, and um, suddenly you know you're wondering what the hell is the backstory of this, and then of course it goes you know in a somewhat different way. I actually kind of like Prometheus. I mean, I think it's not perfect. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like this movie. Um, I would say that my 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 opinion of Prometheus, and we we could talk about this always in a later episode, is that it has the, the best things about Prometheus are the same things that are the best things about mm-hmm. Alien, which is the set design. And there are some scenes in Prometheus where I like I'm just watching slack jawed because it's so pretty. But in some great acting as well, like Ridley Scott gets some great performances out of his actors, and I think his casting is also. Yeah, but uh, okay, this is where we might disagree. Okay, okay, there's one really good performance. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's entirely fair. That I will grant you. And it is by Um, an android. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But it's a really great performance, and it's it carries the movie like it it really does. And to the extent that that movie is good, it's because of that performance. So shall we move on to the horror? Yes, let's get to the horror. We know that the facehugger falls off of Kane, and he seems to make a full recovery, even though there are several debates about why they let him on the ship in the first place. They leave the planet and plan one last meal before going back to sleep. Kane then has the mother of all stomach bugs literally shoot out of his abdomen uh, and scuttle away. The rest of the crew breaks into teams to find and kill the alien. This does not go well. First, Brett is killed, uh, then Dallas. They realize the xenomorph has gone from being somewhat cat-sized to linebacker-sized. With Dallas and Kane dead, Ripley does get access to Mother and learns that Ash was given a secret order prioritizing the safe capture of the alien above all other priorities, including the safety of the crew. Ash sees Ripley read this, then attacks Ripley, tries to kill her with, I believe, a girly magazine, but Parker and Lambert stop him, and in the ensuing fight, everyone discovers that he is, in fact, a robot, or as Lance Henriksen put it in the sequel, an artificial person. 
Anna, to this day, I do not entirely understand why corporate would give the order that it did. I mean, yes, I understand it to be clear that they want to capture the Xenomorph, but this seems like a terribly inefficient way of going about things. And what is unclear from, from watching again is exactly when corporate knew that there was a Xenomorph out there, because it makes it seem, given that Ash had been the science officer, was stationed as science officer only two days before, that they knew about this before the ship even launched, which again makes it super weird. Okay, first, have to just note again, the chestbuster scene, so yes. incredibly important to filmmaking, in mm-hmm. addition to this um, particular plot. Um the documentary has some really interesting stuff about how it was filmed, including the fact that they used real awful or awful. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. I think it's um, awful, but yes. Awful uh, cow guts. Oh. Um, <laughs> now, I, maybe you can confirm because like I think one of the things that like is in the back of my brain is that the is that the other actors didn't know that something would explode. They knew that they knew the the particular the, the overall thing of the scene. They didn't realize that there was going to be actual like something exploding from from John Hurt's chest. I think what the corrective that that this documentary offers is that they knew that some kind of thing would be emerging from his chest. Right. The degree of gore was the surprise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The amount of blood that was shot out of his chest, the amount of right. literal gore that is that yeah. is you know and, viscera, it, and when yeah. you think about it, it is actually unrealistic. <laughs> like the, <laughs> <laughs> the amount of blood that comes out of him is perhaps more that would really be in, than, than be in a human body. There's some funny stuff. They did use the first take for some of the scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. Lambert, actually, if you if you watch, she falls oh. out of out of the scene, mm-hmm. and that was not intentional. Um, she literally mm-hmm. slips on the blood and has to kind yeah. of scurry back into the scene. Right. Also, the reason why the first take was the one that they used is that the cast is like, "What the fuck?" Which is a really genuine reaction. Right. right. No, that's an honest, grounded reaction given like the and again, this is worth how do I put this? I'm always surprised when I remember that Dan O'Bannon played a crucial part in this film. And, and it, you know, he's the one who created the chest bust, bursting scene. The reason I'm surprised by this is that as someone who wrote theories of international politics and zombies, I know Dan O'Bannon primarily from the fact that he was the director of Return of the Living Dead, which is a 1985 zombie movie that it would be safe to say zombie fans have at best a mixed reaction to. (laughs) Um, They are not huge fans of the movie. The movie is actually, however, responsible for the trope of zombies liking brains. That is where that comes from. So again, it's like he plays this weird role in, in sort of legendary stuff, but... Yeah. One of the things that the the movie argues about o- O'Bannon's part in in Alien is that if he had been the one totally in charge, it would have been mm-hmm. a more stereotypical movie in a lot of ways, more stereotypical yeah. horror and more stereotypical yeah. sci-fi elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and again, Ridley Scott is the person who I and I guess Walter Hill sort of subverted uh, those tropes. And what I think is interesting about the chestbuster scene and the degree to which it's influential and not influential, maybe should be more influential, is I think the influential part of it is the body horror, right? Yeah. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, a part of sci-fi going back, but I think had not been fully realized on the screen. But the part that's not influential enough is that what the fuck part. I think yeah. that now in horror and sci-fi body horror, you get that, oh, run around sort of reaction and the much more grounded reaction is the one that the cast had in the moment what in the actual fuck just happened that freeze that most humans have when something out of our experience occurs in front of us yeah so i I would say two things on this the the first is look the chestbuster scene 
this movie is equivalent of the shower scene in Psycho. It is just something that you, if you've never seen it before, is legitimately shocking in a way that, you know, is... In, I actually feel sorry in some ways for, for later generations. And this is something I was going to talk about a little bit later, but it's what I call the Casablanca effect, which is a movie that is so iconic that you see inevitable homages, parodies, iterations of it, that if you see those first and then you watch the original movie, sometimes the original scene actually loses some force because you're used to it already. But nonetheless, it's the first time it did it. The other thing I would say, though, on this is that when you talk about the body horror, the chess scene obviously comes to mind. But actually, for me, the, the one that still resonates is that shot of the face hugger on Kane mm-hmm. where with the thing around his neck that constricts anytime mm-hmm. they try to remove it. That remains to me completely terrifying and that is the thing that I can never quite, you know. Oh, you mean the dismiss. male rape reference, Dan? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's super uncomfortable to be in- penetrated, is... you know, against your will. Yeah, that sucks. Okay. <laughs> Wonder why you would have there such a strong reaction to it. There is nothing I can it. say in response to that um, that will not get me canceled. So let's let no. Go I forward. think I think it's an honest. Re- I mean, honestly, Dan. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the movie works is because yeah. it makes everyone uncomfortable for different reasons. Again, sort of the documentary has this whole argument. It's about patriarchal guilt. I guess maybe um, yeah. what I think it's it's about horror and it's about yeah. what really disturbs people. And yes, the movie was made by mostly men. Yeah. But they had a really good idea about what's disturbing to men, you know? Yes. <laughs> and That's maybe one thing. of those things is having a strong woman in charge also. Ooh. Like, again, not intentionally, not saying that you personally are like, oh, my God, a strong woman in charge. That's scary. But, you know, in that time period, when you were seeing, you know, women's liberation being a, a force in the world in a much more explicit way than kind of, a, well, today, actually, I would guess you would say, yes, it is, mm-hmm. is reoccurred. Yes. <laughs> But sort of having its its second wave, right? Second wave feminism is happening then. Yeah. Um, I think that the power that Ripley has does speak to anxieties that men were having at the time. It's true. And actually, one of the, again, one of the subtler things which I actually liked about this movie is that, again, before the facehugger scene is the the ways in which Ripley rubs other members of the crew the wrong way. Mm-hmm. By by the way, wanting to do the right thing. Like, you know, she, she pushes on Ash about why the hell Ash let them in the door in the first place she pushes on dallas saying we're gonna take off are you fucking nuts what and you know in retrospect she seems like the sane person but i do wonder if the first time you watched this movie or the people who watched in the theaters thought oh god she's so annoying you know why is she being a stickler like this and so yeah, on what so a forth. bitch on wheels that right. that one is Although, yeah and again this goes back to the scene which i really did wish had been included in the original film which was as they're dissecting or trying to get the alien off of kane's uh, face you know, Ripley comes down and is kind of pissed off that they've been let in. And Lambert responds by like striking her and like calling her a bitch and like and Dallas yells at her as well. And the thing is, I thought that scene should have been in the original film because those were all honest and actually appropriate responses. Ripley mm-hmm. should have been pissed that they were they were let in. If I'm Lambert or Dallas, I'm also pissed because Ripley didn't want us in in the first place. That that was mm-hmm. an entirely grounded human reaction. And in the theatrical version, you don't see any of that, which I thought I remember watching it this time thinking, that's weird. They should no, have been angry. There's some, there's an argument there that goes to the economy of the film because you can mm-hmm. suss all of that out without that scene. You know, like but I I agree in that also maybe would have given Lambert a little bit more to do besides wine. 
which is sort of what she does. Um, although I'm, I, I look forward to sort of hearing a, a more of a defense for her. I, I do want to like her more than I do. Another thing about all of this, and something I wanted to point out actually um, in the sequence where they discover the ship, is Ash's glee, right? Yeah. Like his barely disguised glee throughout the whole thing. And, and the once you've seen the movie, it's not so mm-hmm. subtle. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the fairly subtle ways that Ash is off kilter from the rest of the crew. And I don't just mean like his enthusiasm for the alien, but like there are shots of him where you see his eyes kind of actually in a very like hobbit like way. (laughs) 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 His eyes kind of twinkle a little bit. And and also the camera is literally like off kilter and literally isolates him from the rest of the crew. Like we Mm. were talking about all these scenes where you see the entire crew. There are several shots of Ash when he's alone and he's kind of looking side eye to people yes no that's true and in that's again it's 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 a goddamn perfect film in that way um but we um, will get to th- why did why did corporate make the decision it did yeah logic of capitalism but right. also the efficiency argument i guess we're just going to argue about like imagined backstory <laughs> but <laughs> i would say that the the company um mm-hmm. got the message right got right. Trans- somehow intercepted this message knew there would be an alien life form for whatever reason maybe knew it was a distress call and not an SOS i actually don't think that that part is important knew right. that the nostromo was going to be the closest ship to it ah oh, okay put ash on board okay. because also knowing that the alien life form may not be amenable <laughs> right to either being transported or maybe openly hostile they knew they would need an need an android. Okay, I do. So, li- I, I confess, I do like the that. All right, that is an actually compelling argument because it is it's, it's sort of the cost efficient of we're not going to launch a whole different ship yes. just to explore this. Oh, we've got this other ship that's going to be roughly in the same area, so we'll just do that and we'll add like this android to guarantee that we actually get what we want. So, yeah. okay, you know what? I actually like that. That's a pretty good, clean version of the story. And more on this later, but I'll drop a hint. It's very interesting to me that they use the tools of the workers <laughs> to try and defeat the alien. Speaking of which, let us wrap but up. But you cannot uh, you cannot destroy the master's house using the master's tools. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right. The other thing I did want to say, you were talking about the way in which Ash is set apart and and so forth during the the movie. And I'm talking about the things that genuinely still scare me to this day. There is a moment when we realize that Ash is an artificial person in which he utters this little high-pitched giggle Mm -hmm. that is fucking terrifying. And it just freaks me out every time I watch this film and in a way that... And that's a little bit interesting if you want to go into sort of trying to figure out the logic of what's happening because right. they give Ash kind of agency and personality right. in a way that doesn't immediately make sense for an artificial person. Right. Right. That laugh, also the scene, which also kind of creeps me out, especially mm-hmm. the second or third or fourth time you see it, but is at the moment just kind of off putting where he's getting ready to oversee the operation of going to the, to the alien craft. And he mm-hmm. does a little like, <laughs> You know, and like jobs yes. in place. Yes. And then yes, like yes. when they first call back to him, he does this sort of sarcastic little giggle and wave that he right. knows they can't see. Mm-hmm. And one wonders why that's there. One argument is that's programmed into him. Like this kind of callousness and sort of sneering attitude towards humans is somehow part of the plan. 
mm-hmm. part of part of his his programming. I mean, I don't really know, like. And it does connect, I, by the way, to the Michael Fassbender artificial person yes, in Prometheus. That's a fair exactly, point. exactly. Yes. So it's maybe entirely intentional. Ian Holm also again, what a fucking cast. Let yes. us move on to the to the final section of the film. Yes. Okay. So in the end, uh, the remaining crew decides to blow the ship up and escape on the shuttle. Lambert and Parker go for oxygen while Ripley preps the ship and corrals Jonesy, the cat, who we have not mentioned up till this point. I apologize for that. The xenomorph kills Parker and Lambert. Ripley has had enough of this shit and therefore decides to set the Nostromo on self-destruct. The xenomorph, however, has blocked her path to the shuttle. Uh, forcing her to try to reverse her decision. She is unable to reverse her decision in time, and therefore the ship is on self-destruct. She has five minutes. Uh, She quickly scrambles to the shuttle, gets Jonesy there. The alien is nowhere to be found and escapes just before the Nostromo explodes. And then Ripley decides to slip into something more comfortable, and that's the end, and everyone lives happily ever after. No, wait, no, 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 no. There is one final twist. It turns out that the alien was a stowaway on the shuttle. Ripley gets into a spacesuit and opens the hatch to space, harpooning the xenomorph and fries it then with the shuttle's engines. She and Jonesy go to sleep, and nothing bad ever happens to her ever again. That last part might have been a small touch of sarcasm. So, uh, you know, Anna, as both of us have watched this movie multiple times, and as I said about, you know, it's, it suffers from something that I'm sure there's a long German word for, but I call the Casablanca effect, um, which is also true, I think, of movies like The Godfather or Romero's Night of the Living Dead, in which you've seen so many versions of it that the original one tends to lose its power. I guess my question is, what still scares you from this movie? I'd offer an addendum to the Casablanca effect, which I understand exactly what you're talking about. And actually, (laughs) we didn't do the thing where we talk about our first encounters with this movie. Mm -hmm. But my first encounter with this movie was probably the Mad Magazine parody of it. (laughs) Um, Because, of course, I was much too young to actually see it in the theater. But I had a very beloved subscription to Mad Magazine, Mm -hmm. which is how I know about a lot of great movies from the 70s. (laughs) Like, I saw, I read the parodies and kind of put together the movie itself in my head, Godfather being one of them. Mm-hmm. and Alien being another. So I like knew about the chestbuster scene, but I will say the first time I actually saw it, it still scared me. And mm-hmm. then I would say sort of the corollary to the Casablanca effect, which you could also call the Casablanca effect, is that if you see the movie enough times, the power comes back. Ah, like, okay. That There is a way in which truly great films have sort of a, a, a peak and valley kind mm-hmm. of experience to them, which is, you know, the first time you see it, especially if you see it without having known anything about it is a transcendent experience and yay great movie maybe second or third or whatever like oh you're just watching it for like maybe the comfort of it (laughs) uh, maybe for particular performances whatever you're in a relationship and and you want to show them the film yeah yeah and they have a fight about it yes um oh that's so tense like when you show someone a movie that you really love and you're like do, do you like it too and, and music like, also works. I kind of liked it. You know, like, yeah, yeah <laughs> The yeah. pressures of that situation. Exactly. Um, but then I think that there's a point at which if you rewatch it enough times, like it gets to be transcendent again. Like I, hmm. I will say like watching this movie, uh, you know, over the past few days, I felt not like I was watching it for the first time or anything, but the, it's excellence just really, you yeah. know, especially I guess maybe I knew we we're going to be talking about it and I was thinking of it in an even more critical way than I usually do. But the excellence of it just just really hit home and, and I was able to appreciate like some of the littler things in it that I hadn't appreciated before, like the stuff with Ash. Mm-hmm. Also the scene where Ripley cries. 
Oh, after um, just learning what Ash had done. Yeah, yeah. Which affected me differently today because it's something that I've, <laughs> I've, I've talked about in therapy. Um, <laughs> and, and also it comes up in, in, in feminist discussions, which is that women's tears are often kind of the way that anger comes out sideways. You know, as women, we're conditioned to not show anger. Mm-hmm. And the socially acceptable way for women to be furious is to cry. Hmm. And that is how I read that scene today. Not as weakness, but as absolute fury. Because I've been there. I've been in that That's position of fury. And only been able to express it as with tears of frustration. So and that's th- what I see in her today. Okay, so I think... A few thoughts on this. The first is is that the way, and this again might be the sort of gendered reaction I have. I agree with you that there was fury there. There was also helplessness in in fury what I saw. at your helplessness. Yes, that that is act- that is what that's about. That's an I mean, entirely it- fair way of, of putting it. And by the way, this is also why I will defend Lambert as a character because I think. Mm-hmm. That Lambert, in some ways, I understand why you might not necessarily be Lambert's biggest fan because there are tropes that Lambert occupies that might be considered traditional feminine role. You know, she's brittle. She is bitchy. There's just no other way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a like a lovely two second exchange between Ripley and Lambert at the very beginning of the film, which makes it very clear they don't get along terribly well. Mm-hmm. There was that. But that said. Lambert is a realized character. Lambert is a human being. It is not a, and I would push back strongly on the idea that she is somehow some sort of stereotype. You know, Mm -hmm. that there are people who we know that are that potentially that can be that brittle. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's just who they are. And so Lambert might not be as likable a person as the other character, like as, as Dallas or as Ripley, but is she just as fully realized? Yeah, I would argue she is just as fully mm-hmm. realized. Which, again, is also, by the way, why I like the scene where she slaps Ripley. Because, again, totally believable and totally grounded in terms of how she would have responded. Last thing I'll say, well, probably not the last thing I'll say about this yeah. scene or that this this section of the movie. But what I want to point out is, did that scene where the alien got fried look familiar to you, Dan? Huh. Oh, yes, yes, The Expanse. I'm sorry, I just realized what you were saying. Okay, I was, I was like, where are you going for with this? You know, but yes, yes, you see that in, I believe, season two of The Expanse? Almost exactly, three? like yeah. almost beat to beat yeah. when he gets when the alien gets fried in the exhaust plume. Yes, that I believe how... that's also the first time we see Holden in his lacrosse suit, by the way, but yes. <laughs> anyway, one of the, the most rewatchable movies of all time, in my opinion, um, I'm going to have to rewatch it to, to pull the quotes that we'll be getting to in a bit. <laughs> yes. Um, and I am looking forward to that rewatch. Before we move on to our quotes and themes, Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Okay, I'm going to be honest. There is not a lot of IR in this movie compared to some of the other stuff that we will be talking about. But there are two IR-adjacent motifs uh, <laughs> that I do think um, you know, are there in the story and really do drive a lot of what's going on. The first one, which we will get to a lot more uh, in the next session, but you talk about, is that class politics are shot through this film. Um, you know, if you are a Marxist, you can recognize an awful lot of what's going on in the Nostromo. Parker and Brett, and I mean this in the most complimentary way, are the most realistic depiction of working class people I have seen in sci-fi. And I want to be specific. This is Parker and Brett. To some extent, you can argue all of the crew are workers, but they are at the bottom of the, the hierarchy. And, you know, that 
screams throughout the entire uh, movie. And again, I'm just props to Yafit Koto and to Harry Dean Stanton for fully realized versions of that. There is in filmmaking, I meant to say this earlier, something called the Harry Dean Stanton rule, which is he (laughs) is not in a bad movie. Like if he is in it, there is a redeeming quality to that movie. Sometimes just his presence, perhaps, but Mm -hmm. he, he is a sign that you are in for a treat. That's fair. Moving on. I would also say that Dallas screams beleaguered middle management. There is no denying that, that corporate exploitation is a, is a factor in this entire movie, but but I loved the way that Dallas seems like he's like torn on from all sides. And I think it's also one of the things, and Ty and that guy pointed that out, this out in, in their podcast when they talked about Alien, and I think it's true as well. You don't know who the protagonist in this movie is mm-hmm. for the first half of the movie, and you think it might be Dallas because Dallas has this certain charisma. He's the, the it's Tom Skerritt. It's Tom Skerritt. He's in charge of the ship. And so you're naturally going to identify with him. And so it's also shocking when he dies. What? You're naturally going to identify with him speaks a little bit to to your gender. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. But I meant you're naturally going to identify with him because he is the captain. You're naturally going to think he's the one who's going to be the hero. Yes, fair enough. I wouldn't say that everyone would identify with him. But however, we we have been trained through culture Yes. To believe that this person, in part because he is a man, is going to be the hero of the film. No, and I will say, again, one of the reasons this movie is so great is that in addition to being a razor-sharp plot and all of that, it successfully subverts genre as well as being of it. And in some ways, that's part of the shock value. That That's part of the, the value of it. And so, yeah, you don't think the captain is going to die because you've been trained not to think that in a variety of, of you know movies that precede this. And so that's part of what's going on. This The second theme, and this is more IR, is the sort of long-term evolutionary nature of international politics. So a lot of international relations scholars argue that, you know, to assume that states or other entities out there, you know, are actually rational is absurd. Rather, the argument is, is that anarchy essentially creates evolutionary pressures, that only the resilient and the efficient survive. And as multiple characters point out during this film, indeed, the two most different characters, Parker and Ash, both say essentially the same thing. The xenomorph has perfectly evolved for space, where our frail human crew has some significant catching up to do. In other words, Anna, there is a damn good reason that Ripley and Jonesy are the only survivors. They are the only ones who actually evolve. (laughs) Also, cats are pretty good apex predators. (laughs) Um, that is a thought that I have every time I watch that movie especially in the scene where Harry Dean Stanton tries to go get Jonesy and winds up getting offed Um, (laughs) oh and that moment that quick shot of the cat reacting to that yes oh the cat's not unhappy the cat's like all right, you know (laughs) the cat's like you know what I get what the alien is thinking yeah I totally get that it's like like you and me all right, same wavelength I have in my head, there is a sequel in which the cat and the alien go off and have adventures. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the Chrissy and Amos show. In this case, they don't solve crimes. They do crimes. Exactly. But... Yes. yes. You could have a grand theme where like it's Chrissy and Amos against the, the, the cat and the xenomorph. Of I want to like Jonesy. Um, and this is also, I mean, I believe this is where you get the filmmaking trope of save the cat. There's a book about screenwriting called Save the Cat, which is how you identify the true hero of a movie, you know. Um, Although I will point out that there is a moment where Ripley abandons Jonesy. I don't believe she does that on purpose. 
I th- well, I think she does do it on purpose, but I think she's doing it literally to try to stop blowing up the ship. I understand yeah. the triage of the moment, but she does abandon him for <laughs> the, the cat for a second. And of course, like for pet people like myself, like it yes. does endear Ripley to us forever. Yes. I also really appreciate that in the sequel, Jonesy is given like you get deserve some time off, my friend. Like- yes. <laughs> That should be the next Alien movie, which is what happens to the cat after that. You know what? The cat goes on and lives the life that indoor cats live, which is, I have sometimes said, if I am ever reincarnated, reincarnated, I would like to be an indoor cat. (laughs) That seems like a pretty awesome life. You know, like you're not really, you're, you don't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Anna. It is time to move on to uh, themes and quotes. Um, Yes. And do you want me to start? I will let you start, Dan. Okay, so my theme is really a very simple one, and in some ways ties into what I was just saying, but it's that Alien, in some ways, is the perfect marriage of two different genres. It's science fiction, but it is also very clearly a horror film. And I think the theme that that you come away with from this movie is that space is horror, that literally the idea of humans being out in space is, you know, in some ways you can argue there are two tropes in science fiction about this. The first is, is that it's wondrous, but the second is, is that it's utterly horrifying because the number of different ways in which bad things can happen to you in space is extraordinary. And so, you know, there's a speech that Ash gives um, after his head has been pretty much separated from his body in which he tries to tell these humans, you have no idea what you are dealing with. Here's the speech. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. Standard procedure is to do what the hell they tell you to do. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? And it, it just demonstrates to me again that whatever else other themes you think about, the thing that was striking to me is how little this crew really comprehended what they were dealing with. And that the alien is truly alien. It is something that you don't understand it's something that you would not comprehend if you were earthbound as it were and that's why it does such a great job of ripping through this crew Uh, the famous tagline for this movie of course in space no one can hear you scream which gets to the horror of space as you're saying not necessarily to the horror of an alien being i would say you know what dan this alien is very recognizable This alien is predatory capitalism. Okay, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously we've mentioned this before. Um, Here are a few quotes that I think illustrate this. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Uh, Before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right? right? Look, I just run the ship. Anything that has to do with the science division, Ash has the final word. How does that happen? It happens, my dear, because that's what the company wants to happen. Don't worry, Parker. You'll get whatever's coming to you. And the other way I feel like this movie telegraphs it's about predatory capitalism is this whole idea that the ship and the alien and the cat would all function just as well without any humans on board. That Mm -hmm. this is a machine that just tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock just moves through space of its own accord with its own logic. There is another theme Mm -hmm. that is less comfortable. For everyone. But I think we need to talk about it. But we need to talk about it. It is only referenced a couple times in dialogue. Uh, And that is uh, male rape and male pregnancy, Mm -hmm. which I think in it, you know, as much as my graduate school past would have me talk about the grand architecture of this and, and, and say like, oh, there's all these different sort of reads on it. I think it's 
just what I said earlier, the people making this movie knew what makes people nervous. Mm-hmm. And this is a time honored, <laughs> you know, way of making people nervous. Not just men, I would argue either. Not just because, you know, rape is really upsetting, but right. going against the natural order of things mm-hmm. or what we perceive as the natural order of things, as our culture tells us is the natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Nature is socially constructed. <laughs> um to a certain extent. And, and that's upsetting. It's upsetting to see something happen that's not supposed to happen. There is a little bit of sexual violence against women in this movie. The scene that you, you mentioned about Ripley being uh, penetrated by a girly magazine yes. by Ash. Yeah. And then uh, Lambert's death is kind of rapey. I don't know if you remember, but like she's standing facing the alien and you see an alien tentacle kind of oh, come yes. up behind her and go between her And go legs. between her legs. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Which, yeah. talk about things that still upset you. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't um, laugh at that. No, no, it's, 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 my reaction is funny, even if, you know, the, yeah. um, uh, the scene itself is really upsetting. I have one other point to make, sort of a debris field point, because um, mm-hmm. it's, again, mm, how intentional, but to the point that this is a movie about predatory capitalism, the Nostromo and the Narcissus are both uh, in the titles of Joseph Conrad stories. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Conrad writes a lot about empire and the destruction that empire rots upon the world. And you could argue, again, this movie is sort of about that. Mm -hmm. A rich text, as we would have said in graduate school. Ooh, yes. I can even, I'll even do that in a British. <laughs> it's a rich text, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> but now let us move into the debris field. Uh, oh, one thing about the debris field, actually, literally, the explosion of the ship is one of the few places where I'm like, eh, this was made many decades ago. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, it was the only, no, my one objection with, with the, the explosion was, I wanted it to be silent. I mean, again, like that, mm-hmm. that was actually something where I really thought that actually you didn't need the sound of it necessarily, that it actually well, would have been more a, terrifying otherwise. This is a nitpick you can have with most modern sci-fi or old sci-fi, mm-hmm. is that no matter how faithful they are to the science of space, and I say this of The Expanse as well, they still mm-hmm. insist on putting like whooshing noises right. um, when a spaceship goes by or whatever. Yeah. Like very, very few science fiction movies or TV shows really have the guts to like go totally silent in space. And, and, and by the way, to be fair, I totally get that because I mean, there is, there is something, there is utility from sound. But this was one of those rare moments where I didn't think you needed the sound and it would have been equally... Yeah. It would All right. So that's a debris yeah. field thing. Let's move on to the rest of the debris field. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I don't have a ton. I have two things, I guess. The first is, is and this really only came back because I was watching it at one point with the closed captioning. I kind of wondered, do interstellar freighters also have flags of convenience? Because at one point when very early Ripley is trying to call Antarctic ground control or something, they describe themselves as the Nostromo coming from the Solomons, which I'm assuming meant the Solomon Islands. And the reason I know this is that when I, you know, in in another life, when I do international political economy, I know for the fact that a lot of uh, shipping have what are so-called flags of convenience, which is they're not registered, let's say, in the United States or the United Kingdom or large countries. They are rather registered in very small jurisdictions because by being flagged there, they manage to avoid certain tax and or regulatory requirements. And I kind of wondered, oh, I wonder if that's still going on when the Nostromo's around. Mm, Capitalism. It still exists. Exactly. And then finally, the last edit, this is the question I think I was going to ask you, Anna, were you okay with all the typing? There was a lot of typing in this film. You know, I was, in part okay. because for some reason, 
I think the reason why the tech of this movie holds up is it doesn't feel futuristic. It mm-hmm. feels current. Yeah. Even the dated, like, you know, cathode rays, you know, terminals and whatnot. The whirring sounds, yeah. <laughs> the whirring sounds. It doesn't feel like I'm, I'm seeing a movie that takes place in the far future in a way. Right. Like, and so the idea that they're still typing, meh. They're still typing on um, the keyboards that have uh, butterfly keys, too, the resistance keys. Right, right? exactly. Like, there was it there? Um, Which I'm not going to lie, is, did, I'm old enough to actually, actually miss those keys every once in a while. You can buy keyboards that have those. There you go. Again, I'll say this fucking cast, like, you know, yeah. what a dream cast. Yes. Uh, a, a, an expanse tie-in that mm-hmm. I must note is at one point, Yafet Koto Parker <laughs> says the only good thing on this ship is the coffee. Yes. <laughs> um, and who knows if that is actually something that they meant to do with the expanse, but it is a funny tie-in. And then, it's a tie-in in the sense that the Canterbury is the exact opposite of that. It has bad coffee and then the Rossi does have good coffee. Exactly. And then something the documentary spends a fair amount of time on and I find interesting is that the chestbuster is almost exactly something that Francis Bacon painted in a triptych about the crucifixion of all things. It is, if you look at this painting and mm. then you look at the chestbuster, it re, it's all mouth. It's this like tube of flesh oh, that has a mouth. Mm-hmm. And it you'll just, they basically just somehow created this Francis Bacon monster like in real life the fact that that's true makes me think of another horror movie or like a, a thriller which is um manhunter uh, which is also called mm-hmm. red uh, red dragon because there's a william blake painting that mm-hmm. plays a, a particular role in that as well so yes props to horror movies that actually recognize where their their archetypes are coming from yeah and yes i believe that it is actually they, they it is a con of course, it's a conscious it's, yeah. it's kind of, it is a conscious thing that they did yeah I think to say any more about this movie, Dan, we would just be repeating ourselves, yeah. just gushing, as mm-hmm. it were, <laughs> about the greatness of this movie. Um, Anna, the highest compliment I can pay is that it was as much fun to talk about this with you as it was to watch oh. the film. Oh, well, Dan, same <laughs> back at you. We, we, it's funny, we're both so giddy to do this episode. Yes. I'm sure that that will happen again. Some of the stuff we have coming up, uh, including Galaxy Quest, are Galaxy Quest, not a perfect movie, no. but a rewatchable, you yes. know, on many fronts. And also, I will confess, I'm super excited to talk about H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, and there is an H.P. Lovecraft, not reference, but a sort of an idea buried in alien uh, that i meant to point out which is this idea of the, the distress call that's really a stay away yeah um a really a warning a distress call that's really a warning is something that happens in, in an hp lovecraft i believe actually specifically it happens in mountains of madness which is one of the hp lovecraft stories we're going to talk about that's true so that is it for this episode uh, unless you have something else i guess the thing i will close with is that we've talked about the great cast props to Sigourney Weaver because she really does carry the last half hour of this film. And Mm -hmm. yeah, she manages to radiate horror, but also authority. And I admire she's, she is a trailblazer in many ways. And and I also just on on that point, Mm -hmm. I think it's really remarkable when she strips down into her underwear, it's not necessarily sexy. No, like, it is like she's just getting ready to go to bed. Yeah. You know, like there is a little bit of tropism, you know, like happening. Like this is something the final girl often does is get undressed. But usually right, in a horror movie, the final girl gets undressed and gets killed. Mm-hmm. Like she just gets undressed. And it's it's partially because she has a very boyish body, probably. But it's not played for sex appeal. Like it's just a sort of a thing that happens. And I, I appreciate that. 
I think we can close. Yes. Uh, I, I will say that we appreciate anyone who listens to this podcast. If you enjoyed <laughs> listening to it and, and want to throw us some money, it, it does enable us to continue making the podcast and continue to pay Karen, our editor, who's the first the person we talk to when, when you're not listening, dear, dear listener. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. And we like to compensate her for her work. Mm-hmm. And then also, if you become a supporting patron, you get to participate in our AMAs. By the time that this comes out, we will have conducted our first one. Mm-hmm. We plan on doing them monthly. It looks like we may be doing them like the first weekend of the month or so. Okay. I think, yeah, like if we're doing it, we're, March 5th is the first weekend of the month, so. Yes, yes. If we do them regularly, that's probably when we'll do them. Mm-hmm. Again, upcoming Left Hand of Darkness, uh, lots of IR, Dan. <laughs> Galaxy Quest, the movie Arrival, which you picked, Dan. I did. And we might have a spirited discussion about. Ooh, I look forward I will to this. say... That if anyone is interested, the soundtrack is so good. The, yes. the music of that movie, I actually own that soundtrack. Mm-hmm. We are taking suggestions. As Dan said, please go to patreon.com slash space the nation or tweet at us, which is at underscore space the nation. If you want to communicate with us, we both are, are very active on Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. And I am at Dan Dresner. And uh, we ask you to keep this channel open for more. 